Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Criminal justice is the theme of both segments of our program today. Upfront punishment and rehabilitation for breaking the law has changed a great deal over the past 20 years. For the most part, gone are the days of lock them up and throw away the key when someone has committed a nonviolent crime. Pennsylvania is actually one of the nation's leaders in these changes. With that in mind, Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack has been leading an effort called Pathways to Pardons. Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack is our our guest today. Lieutenant Governor, welcome to the program. Scott, thanks for having me. Okay, I'm going to start off with the basic question. What is Pathways to Pardons? Well, Pathways to Pardons really is about that most of us in Pennsylvania and America believe in second chances for people who've earned them and rehabilitate it and change their lives if, if they had a uh, criminal conviction. Uh, a lot of us make stupid errors in our lives. We, uh, when we ask for forgiveness, in many cases, we get it. Um, so what Pathway to Pardons is, it is utilizing the idea of reform in the criminal justice system to let people completely clean uh, their past up get a clean record so that they can go on and meet their full potential in life, support their families, contribute to society, coach, teach, uh, be nurses, scientists, do all those things that they can't do because they have a criminal record. And we have this idea of uh, that you can get an expungement. That's often very complicated, and it sometimes doesn't work. Yes, you still end up with a criminal record. So pathway to pardons is really first we want people to know that there's a pardons process that they can pursue if they have a criminal record. And we want the process in which to follow that to be pretty simple, uh, as opposed to it's been bureaucratic in the past, it's taken too long, and we're trying to expedite that process. So if you're someone who's saying, you know, I've really changed my life, and now the last thing I've got to do is uh, get, the, uh, get, get all that uh, stuff off my record so that people know the real person they're dealing with, that uh, they should be able to go down that path to a pardon. It also, uh, it, Scott, it really lines up with what Governor Wolf has been doing with uh, uh, the, the basically taking on the, uh, the opioid epidemic because about 70% of people who end up with any kind of criminal conviction, it's usually related to that they're addicted to drugs or a- alcohol or uh, were involved in that at an earlier age and it was just ridiculous and it doesn't express who they are. Um, so I think we're the only state, we're, we're being a leader that's really uh, utilizing the idea of a pardon, and uh, we're getting a lot of success with it, Scott. Well, let's talk about that, because I, what you just described, a lot of these things existed beforehand. There's not a whole lot new there. What is new about Pathways to Pardons? It's, and you make a very good point, because the system we've had has been in place for a lot of years, just most people haven't known about it. And uh, in, including the experts in criminal justice and in law enforcement. And so what we've had is it hasn't been a priority in the past to uh, show people that they could pursue a pardon. Um, and as a result, the, the staffing level for the Board of Pardons has been really uh, beneath modest. And the process by which someone can get a pardon has taken over five years to even get a hearing on it. So for those who are aware of it, it's really it's very discouraging because uh, a lot can happen in five years. And in many cases, too, uh, even those folks who got that hearing and got that chance to uh, make the case for a pardon, it was not a priority of last of the last uh, administration. So what, what we're saying is 
giving people a second chance and giving pardons is a priority. That's what's new. And we're working very hard usually through uh, elbow grease, to tell you the truth. We, we only have, uh, we have about the same budget, but uh, we're, we're on our way to reducing the backlog of people trying to get um, a hearing on a pardon. Uh, we've, we're on our way to cutting that by 50%, and we want to do a lot more. And we're doing it basically with the same staff for the same budget. But the members of the board, I asked them, uh, I said, I would like you all to consider and you know who's on the board, the Attorney General right. and others, mm-hmm. I said, I'd like you to consider uh, adding more days because I, I want to hear more cases so that we can give more pardons if people have earned them. And I, I appreciate the fact that all the members agreed to do the extra time. We're hearing more cases. We have our staff working very hard to, to move the cases through, and we're trying to improve the technology um, at Pathway to Pardons. It's a a former idea of uh, you know Pennsylvania state government where to file uh, to get a pardon it's uh, you have to have a, a a huge packet of paper and it's about six copies that you have to present and it hasn't been something you could do online and it's complicated and if one piece of paper is missing you know typical bureaucratic process they kick the whole thing back you end up in the back of the line and people are just very frustrated so what we're trying to do is you know Let's make it 2016-17, uh, uh, make the process a higher technology, something something that you can do online, that it's uh, relatively fast, and uh, it's something that, that's what's new about Pathway to Pardons, and we're, we're, on that, we're in that process. And this kind of goes back to what I mentioned in the introduction, that uh, Pennsylvania has been one of the leaders in criminal justice reform, at least when we're talking about punishment, crime, real, rehabilitation. And you, know, you mentioned the former administration, the Corbett administration. A lot of this did begin under, now when I say this, I mean this reform. John Wetzel, who's the Secretary of Corrections, was the Secretary corrections during the Corbett administration. Overall, there has been a sea change across this country, across this state, that we can't arrest our way out of the drug problem that that we have in this country, that the people who are addicted, that have a substance abuse problem, uh, that they need help, that they need treatment, that that works better than just you know putting them behind bars and all that this seems to fit in with that whole theory yep this is this is true um and it, and and i think it's a, it's a great thing that uh whether you're conservative or liberal or a libertarian or um you know, you know no matter what your background is everyone sort of recognizes the way we've been doing in the past hasn't worked um we talk about what a great uh, Secretary of Corrections we have in uh, in Secretary Wetzel. He's uh, comes from a conservative type background. He's a a guy who uh, I believe was appointed under the Corbett administration. Very forward looking guy. Always has said uh, that uh, we we've wasted a lot of resources. Over two and a half billion dollars we spend on building prisons, and and most people in Pennsylvania say we don't want to spend the money on building more prisons. We'd like to build more schools and uh, put it towards education. So he, he gets it, and he actually is an integral part because he, uh, he makes recommendations, and uh, in those cases where it's a commutation, he's a guy who would, would have lived with uh, someone who's seeking a pardon or a commutation and, and knows him day to day. So we listen to Secretary Wetzel um, in, in many, many cases. 
And then we have uh, the Secretary of Drug and Alcohol is also from Gary Tennis. Yeah. Gary Tennis is a, t- a former prosecutor in Philadelphia. Very, you know, uh, really understands the issue of addiction and how that affects uh, people ending up in prison when they should probably go go to a rehab, a halfway house, and then get a chance to have a. Uh, 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 give a give back to society, be an active participant, meet their full potential. Because what Gary Tennis always says is, if you meet people who are in recovery, you know it's really they're our best citizens because they realize all the things that they have done wrong, and now they do basically the opposite. They're try everything they do is about trying to give back and do right. So we got to invest in these uh, folks, and I'm not saying everyone gets a pardon. Everyone shouldn't, um, but usually it's in the case of uh, a nonviolent person with a really a significant track record of uh, doing positive things and not getting into trouble. And these are the folks that I think uh, should be given that second chance, and uh, that's what we're trying to do. We want to talk more about that is, uh, you know, who are the good candidates for this in a moment? You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing Pathways to Pardons. It is a program being promoted by the Wolf Administration. Our guest today is Pennsylvania's Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You briefly, Governor, you briefly started describing the people who are ideal for this, who uh, are good candidates to be pardoned before we went on the way to the break. Expound on that a little bit. Who are we talking about? What do they have to do? Usually you should, you should and this is not formally written, but as far as what we look for when we're, we're determining if someone should get a hearing and then get a, get a chance at a pardon, it's usually uh, at least, say, five or six years with not uh, getting into any trouble whatsoever and demonstrating sort of a very positive uh, employment record and, and trying to do things the right way. So that's just to even get a hearing. And, you know, if it's someone who um, was convicted of some kind of an offense where there were drugs and alcohol involved, you see if that person um, has found recovery. And then if they have found recovery, are they doing those positive steps that are a part of that that shows that they're, they're really interested in giving back to the community and meeting their po- full potential? Um, so really what you do is I think you evaluate folks just like you would your neighbors. You say, is this a good person? Is this person who we want in, uh, who's, who's making a difference, who's being positive and trying to give back? And it's amazing because you hear the stories of uh, people give testimony about how they've changed and why they need a pardon. And it's, uh, it's uh, many are just transformed people. And you could see that uh, they're completely different. And, you know, in some of these cases, we've had people who've had long-term uh, criminal record, uh, uh, something from when they were, say, 18 or 19 years mm-hmm. old. And then it's, it's like 25 years later, and they've been a successful person, and, and their, their children are grown. And that then because of the new background checks, that criminal record comes up and that person is told um, you're not going to be employed here anymore. And the person is saying, what are you talking about? I've been here for for decades and I'm 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 one of our best employees. And they say they're told, oh, we agree. But, you know, it's just our procedure. And and you failed the background check with this criminal conviction. So it's really it could be traumatic to folks and it affects families. And then you have other folks that are, are really good, trying to go to school, trying to be in the healthcare industry. You cannot, um, 
get your nice nursing license. You can't uh, pursue a nursing career if you um, have that criminal record. So we have to, I think it's a good idea to, to help people clean up that record. And I really think that the people who are on the, the Board of Pardons, who, who, who serve with me, I'm, I'm the chair, I think they all have really excellent backgrounds and can evaluate. And then it's also a group dynamic where we have to discuss whether a person is worthy of a pardon. Um, they say that most people, uh, if, if you're someone such as myself, who, who is uh, you know, a political leader and, and run for election, that the last thing I should probably want to do is is uh, be giving a lot of pardons, right? Because you never know, something could Actually, happen. Actually, that has happened that, in the past as people in your position have been burned by that. And I feel like, you know, uh, it's great to say, I boy, I would fear if something happened, but I also feel like, you know, people's lives are on the line. And if they've demonstrated that they've really changed. I mean, I'm a smart guy. I think I can evaluate these things, and I'm I'm there with the attorney general and a psychiatrist and some and a victim's advocate and a criminologist. And I think if we all put our heads together, we'll make the right decision. And you know, we're not we're not uh, we're not saying that uh, violent uh, predators are going. And nobody's getting a pardon in that case. We're we're talking about people. It's usually nonviolent. It's usually people who've demonstrated that uh, they want to make a difference and they've changed. And we all have these people in our neighborhoods and our families. It's amazing to me how many, um, I, how many we do a, a Pathway to Pardons workshop throughout Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, we get mothers coming in for their children or their husbands who say, how do we pursue this pardon? Because sometimes people are ashamed. They're ashamed of their past. And you know what that is? We're punishing them over and over and over again for something they did a long time ago because they can never get that job or teach or work uh, in the community and meet their full potential. And that's a, that's a harsh punishment. And so people who, if, if they're out there and they say, well, I did this thing and it's, a, does that include me? I mean, uh, I, I have this on my record. Yes, it includes you. Mm-hmm. And you should at least make the inquiry. Uh, okay. You, you just said that uh, you're a smart guy. You have five people uh, who are on the board of pardons. Um, you know, I think we all have heard of cases, or at least have been suspicious sometimes, when someone who has committed crime uh, is looking for probation or parole, or maybe even a pardon, yeah. has found God, or has appeared to turn their life around. How do you know? Well, listen, it's it's an important thing. How can you know? How can you judge someone's sincerity? Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's really, that's a part of living in the world and, and being a human being. And I think you hope, if you're a citizen of Pennsylvania, you hope that you have people who, um, who serve in a capacity to evaluate this kind of thing, that um, they're, they're smart and they're a real human being and real experience. I think I'm, I'm the, that kind of person. I think the other members of the board are that where you can, you'll know if somebody's full of malarkey, as Joe Biden said. Um, if somebody is really uh, good at persuading you about something and it's and it's all a lie, I think there'll be other things in their record that'll show up. And I've seen people who have been uh, have been full of it to say and come and make a great to thinking they're making a great presentation to the uh, board of pardons. And and we have uh, essentially they're they're in public, they're in the Supreme Court uh, courtroom, and there's an audience there and. Uh, it's an uncomfortable situation for someone who gets caught being full of bull 
um, when everybody do starts. You, do you call them on it? We have called them. I've I've called folks on it. Um, I've I big holes in their story, and you're not there to embarrass people. But if someone comes in and uh, they're not telling the truth, you got to expose that because there are people standing right behind them who really are. Uh, entitled nobody's entitled but worthy of a a second chance and a pardon so if this person comes in and they're not really worthy and they're they're just wasting our time you know it's it's something that uh, should be exposed because the next people in line um are we got to get to them and mm-hmm. it's uh that's the important thing people who deserve a second chance is what it's about I want to tell a story here and I've you know we've talked on our program very often about the opioid crisis here in Pennsylvania and and uh, those who have an addiction uh, problem. I got an email from a listener after one of these programs said that she supports helping those with substance abuse problems to get help, rehab, try to get clean. But that still doesn't keep her eight-year-old son from having nightmares, thinking about the person who broke into their house, even that bur- though that burglar was addicted to drugs. Her point being is that a crime was still committed. Sure. And listen... I've heard, and I believe that too, and I and uh, I I support her view on that because sometimes there is uh, you can forgive, but you can't forget, and you can't ask people if they're a victim of crime to to forget something just because someone has uh, changed their life. So, in those cases where a mom like that would uh, send a letter or um, testify that. She felt very uncomfortable about someone being given a pardon because of the damage that it's done. Regardless, I think that I know I would uh, I would support that victim, and I would not be inclined to uh, give a pardon in that case. Mm. And in most cases, in in probably all cases, I would say whenever the victim gets on the record as saying I don't support a pardon, that person doesn't get a pardon. However, we have had a lot of cases where victims have actually said either through letter or sometimes even showed up in person saying, you know, I really do think that they've changed and they're a good person now and I know they wouldn't have done it had they uh, been themselves and and they support the pardon. But, you know, I, I, I think uh, the damage of a burglary, and that's that's probably a, a more, uh, a rarer case that you would see. Usually you would see somebody who maybe um, got caught with a small amount of marijuana, or if they had a drug problem, did some retail theft. Um, or not, stealing from relatives yeah. or you know, something like that. And then if their relatives say, well, they got help and we really, they, they've, they're a changed person. These are the kinds of people we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we should uh, define some of the terms that we're using today. What exactly is a pardon? Because, you know, expungement... And, and I'm, I'm going to go a little bit further with this. What does a pardon do, uh, give that person who has been granted a pardon? Well, I would say, and this is what I've discovered from, from doing this and, and having our program called Pathway to Pardons, that a pardon is probably the, your best option if you, can, if you are a worthy candidate to really just completely clean up your criminal record. Because the issue with uh, expungement is 
you may still have to answer that uh, at some time that you were arrested. Or that job application yeah, or something like that. But that, that yeah. your record was expunged. And then a lot of times you, you're you told your record's going to get expunged and it doesn't get expunged. Or you pay the fee and it's expunged in one court, but it's not not in, not in on a federal record or not on a, a state record, but in a county record. And so it's a, it's a frustrating process where... No matter where one goes, somehow, some way, that criminal record still shows up. But with a pardon, basically, if you get a pardon, it's literally as though you can say the crime never happened. And then you use the pardon um, to – you file it with wherever you were convicted – and that's supposed to be actually a silver bullet for expungement where they literally take it out of the records. So when you get that question that says, uh, were you ever arrested, you can literally uh, and legally say, no, I was not. Um, that's why a pardon is really the, the the most effective way to clean up your record. And I think the process, too, where people are appearing in front of you know significant uh, state leaders and saying, saying, this is what I did, and here's what I've done with my life, and this is why I'm a worthy candidate for a pardon. I think it's an amazingly, uh, it's a cleansing thing for the person doing it, but it's an important thing for us as leaders to see somebody on the right path and to learn from that person how you do it, how you change your life. And so then when other people come down the path, we can make that comparison. We could say, you know, you don't deserve a pardon because we just had three people in here and they showed us the things in their lives of how they changed and what they're doing. And and they've done a, a, a much better job. But maybe you should take some advice from those folks. So we do, do tell people that. Do you actually tell them if you've uh, denied a pardon or denied? Because the Board of Pardons is not just pardons, Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, have you ever told someone that, okay, you're on the right path, but you're not there yet, and here's specifically what you need to do? Yes. And uh, I would like us to do more of that, and it's because we have so many cases, you uh, you don't get the time always to sort of provide some guidance to people where you, you see what they should be doing, but we do it a lot. And usually it's the person who we, – we've had people who, when they do it all wrong – we tell them this is this is what we're hearing from you that indicates that that you haven't learned a lesson that you haven't owned up to what you've done and that it was wrong and how you've changed and and you're still being selfish and self-absorbed so that's why you're not going to get a pardon uh, but then other people will uh be pretty good you know they'll they'll have done a lot of positive things but there still isn't that accountability you know that you still hear Blaming other people, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's I don't have that accountability. So we're always looking for it. You have to own up to it. And it's like anything. If you get in trouble at work, you know, people want to hear you own up to what you did. Don't be blaming other people. It's really things that our parents tell us when we're children. And so they were right when they told us, you're going to get in trouble someday if you keep, uh, keep, keep up with this bad attitude. So sometimes it's a bad attitude about what people did, other times you have people with a great attitude who've really changed their lives, and you say, my gosh, they should absolutely get a pardon. And sometimes, just reading the paperwork, you say, I can't believe we're going to have to have a hearing on this person from everything that I've seen. Their record shows they're absolutely going to get a pardon. They show up at the, at the Board of Pardons, and they come to make their case, and sometimes the board members hardly ask any questions, and they say, just thank you. And other times Attitude they take or what? It's it's uh, 
it's people who have gone back to school and you see that uh, sometimes they've gotten advanced degrees and uh, are doing very important things, have a family, long time married, really giving to society. And you say, um, wow, this is an outstanding person. You do want to check just for one second to say maybe it's an illusion sometimes. But, you know, somebody's history often doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. And so they come in and, and it's usually the person who's most worthy of a pardon has the least amount to say. They say, I did. I made a mistake a long time ago and I'm sorry for it. And I think I've, I know I've learned from it and I, I would never have done that. Uh, today and I haven't and I've been I haven't done anything wrong for 20 years in fact I've done great things in my society so I would hope that maybe you would grant a pardon these are the people that you see a lot and so you you really don't have a lot of questions to ask that person the, the governor ultimately grants the pardon. That's right. Uh, the Board of Pardons makes recommendations to the governor and you said yourself that uh, uh, politically a lot of governors probably don't like to make a lot of pardons because come back to bite them. Uh, if, you know, God forbid, one of those people who was granted a pardon went out and committed another crime, or even in campaign commercials, we know, you know, so-and-so granted uh, 50 pardons, and is he really tough on crime mm -hmm. and, and all that? I mean, how much does politics, I know this is a difficult question sure. to answer, but is it ever a consideration? Well, I'm, let's we'll pretend like it's just between you and I, which which is not politics. Always comes into these things, and I mean to say it doesn't is is really you're not you're not being straightforward. So it always does in one way or another. It enters people's minds, and the fact is you don't want it to be something that interferes with doing justice, doing the right thing, because politics can can be in your thought process and you can still do absolutely the right thing in justice. The the bottom line is um, I think it's it's if you're elected to serve people, um, you really are supposed to serve the, the, the citizens. So if you put your own career or your own self ahead of those people, um, I think you're failing in, in, in politics. But you know, when Governor Wolf uh, reviews our um, our recommendations, I think he's very he's a very thoughtful guy. So he sits down, he he reviews them personally, and I think he has a great respect for uh, the uh, guidance that we give when we determine that someone should or should not get a pardon. And um, I don't think he's I'm you know I, I say now, and I think uh, you know I'm not concerned. I, I believe I do the best that I can to make the right decision, and I, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with that, and I, I believe that it's the right decision. I think the governor is the same way when he uh, determines whether someone should get a second chance, that um, he believes that that person should get a second chance. And I don't want to say, you know, if we're wrong, you know, so be it, but nobody's going to get recommended for a pardon anyway who's who's got a a, a really uh, a risky background you know we're not we're not going to just sit there and say gee I, I really hope this violent person uh, is turns out okay it's usually people who have clearly clearly demonstrated that it's cut and dry yeah it's cut and dry they're good folks and it's amazing that uh, that uh, this criminal record continues to torment their life and their family and it's very uh, fulfilling when you can see that person who's changed 
and you get a chance to encourage them because that's I think that's what we all want to do to be be a great society. And guess what? You spend a lot less money on corrections and law enforcement, and you can you can spend these resources uh, on education and other things. That's the name of the game. If we can get our citizens to uh, get back in the game and meet their full potential instead of uh, this endless line of uh, frustration and sometimes uh, creating uh, so many barriers that it leads some folks down a path where they have no other choice. And uh, we like to say, oh, well, everyone has a choice, which we all do, but uh, it, it makes things more challenging for people when they can't get their record cleaned up. Mm. Uh, Governor, we, we're almost out of time. And I, before you leave, this is uh, the first time that we've had the, an opportunity to speak to someone in the administration since last week's election. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are bigger ma- republic majorities in the legislature now. You, as president of the Senate, will be dealing with uh, uh, more Republicans, a few more Republicans in the Senate. I think it's all Republicans. I don't even know if I'm going to see any Democrats over there. <laughs> okay, so I'm sure you and uh, Governor Wolf had had an opportunity to talk about, okay, so how are we going to deal with this? In just in my last question, what will the priorities be? Does this change the Wolf administration strategy, agenda, priorities? Just what? It's a, it's a challenge, and it's going to be more challenging. And uh, Governor Wolf's up for the challenge, and I'm up for the challenge. And uh, you, when you get lemons, you have to try and make lemonade. And uh, so, look, the, the, in the Senate, uh, the majority has a, a veto-proof majority, which is a significant uh, challenge. And the, the level of bipartisanship will be substantially less because when you don't have to compromise, uh, most people choose not to. So I think the governor's up for the challenge. It will be a challenge, particularly in light of uh, the uh, the fiscal office predicting a very significant yeah. uh, budget shortfall, which Governor Wolf had talked about at the beginning of the administration. So we're go- we've got some obstacles. We've got a minefield, but I believe that uh, we can get some things done, and we'll find a way to work with folks uh, to get it done for the people. And if if uh, if if there there's always a chance that uh, we can we can compromise. That's our system. So it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, but I think our work did get uh, significantly tougher. But that's why we get the big bucks. <laughs> uh, I'm sure the taxpayers love to hear that. <laughs> and by the way, I see we got a couple questions about uh, pathways to pardon. We'll try to get the lieutenant governor to answer those or the office to answer those off the air because we are almost out of time. Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Peter Smith recently retired as the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania in his career that has spanned more than four decades. He has seen many of the ebbs and flows of criminal justice in Pennsylvania, including many that we just discussed. Former U.S. Attorney Peter Smith is our guest today. Mr. Smith, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure to be here again. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I'm sure you were listening to my conversation with the lieutenant governor about uh, pardons. And as I mentioned to him, and I think the last time you were here, we even talked about this in the federal criminal justice system, that we are going through some real sea changes right now, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And one of them is the the uh, awareness on on all political levels and, and, and party persuasions of the fact that the, the 
the criminal justice process involves a lot more than uh, sending a person to a, a term of imprisonment, that the after effect is a major part of it. What do you do with people after their sentence? What, what, what do you do with rehabilitation? And what do you do as far as pardons are concerned? And the follow-up to make sure that we're not just on an endless treadmill of sending people to jail, they serve their term, they get out, they get back into trouble again, and we don't really solve the problem. I think the federal government and the state government are grappling with it, and Pennsylvania is among the forefronts among the states. In the 40-plus the years that you have been in the criminal justice system, what's been the biggest change? I mean, is it that attitude of, okay, we went through those ebbs and flows of get tough on crime, mm. where we had crime problems. Actually, in the last 20 years, if you look at crime rates, they've come down. Yeah. But now we are talking about rehabilitation, uh, treatment for those who have been involved in drugs, rather than just, you know, lock them up and we don't want to hear from them anymore. Yeah. I, I think I work and live through the entire cycle of get tough, lock them up, wait a minute, are we overdoing it? Uh, and then the obvious decrease in, in, in major and violent crime in the cities and throughout the country. A slight uptick lately, no one's exactly yeah, sure that, what's yeah. caused it, but it's enough to make people want to be careful. Actually, I think government agencies, especially prosecutors, have to keep both in mind. You've got to protect the public against violent crime, but you've also got to ensure that protection extends beyond just sending the people to jail to do as much as you can as far as intelligent, creative, uh, carefully structured uh, rehabilitation to bring as many people back to make them useful and productive members of society again and not just warehouse them because you can't send everybody to jail for a life sentence. As, as a prosecutor, though, I mean, and I think I mentioned this to mm -hmm. you the last time you were on, that often those of us who don't know a whole lot about the criminal justice system because we haven't been personally involved get what we know about it from TV, where yes. it's so dramatic and all that. And prosecutors are often portrayed as win at all costs. This is a bad person that I want to send to jail. I want to send that person to jail for a long time so they don't hurt anyone else. Now, there's a difference, obviously, between violent and nonviolent crimes. But as a prosecutor, what did you? how did you take your responsibility? Well, when you're young, you tend to have a simplistic approach to everything, including the profession you're choosing to follow. I think most prosecutors are intelligent people. Most investigators are intelligent people. And they start to see after a while that there's more to dealing with the problem than uh, prosecuting the case and, and achieving the maximum possible sentence under whatever the rules are in effect at that time. Uh, and slowly but surely it begins to dawn on people that you have to do more. And that involves training and modernizing of investigative and police departments. Uh, it includes training and modernizing and updating the thinking of prosecutors in terms of what are really the appropriate and most intelligent sentences to impose. Um, we have a particular problem with violent street crime. Nobody wants violent criminals to remain on the street. The federal system has a great arsenal of tools there, mainly the pretrial detention. It's much uh, it, it's a much better procedure for detaining violent criminals in the federal court system than the state court system, so increasingly people will turn to the federal system to prosecute repeat violent offenders. But if the people are just warehoused, if you don't take the opportunity uh, to, to, to institute some programs 
to, if possible, bring the person back to make to reality and make them more useful member of society, you're wasting that. Federal prisoners here who are detained prior to con- to, to being uh, tried and convicted are often housed in local facilities because the federal facilities can't house them. While they're in the local facilities, they can't participate in state or local programs for drug rehabilitation because they're federal. Um, I've made the point and tried to will try to make it again if I can that these there should be some enhancement of the federal program to allow these people to participate immediately to be placed in drug rehabilitation programs effectively to strike while the iron is hot because nothing is worse for anybody than the first couple of days they find themselves in jail and rather than sit there for months or sometimes longer with nobody to talk to but other arrested criminals it, maybe they should be exposed as soon as possible to the possibility of rehabilitation programs. And there's also a program in the federal system itself to improve the programs that the Federal Bureau of Prisons offers uh, in, to deal with people who are sent to federal prison. Many times they can't get into programs because they've got fines that they owe or they've got local and state crimes that they haven't really paid the consequences for. And there's an effort in the federal system to remove those hurdles. I I wish it could be enhanced and expanded. I think we might be more successful in preventing repeat offenders if we operate on it more effectively. You started, and this is not going to be kind of a this is your life thing. uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You started back in the 60s with then Philadelphia District Attorney Arlen Specter, who went on to become uh, Pennsylvania's longest serving U.S. senator. And you kind of ran the gamut with uh, Senator Specter, DA Specter, in that you worked with him as a DA, but then when you were nominated, for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Middle District, Senator Specter interviewed you? Yeah, it reminded me of the old saying of be nice to people because you're going to meet them again at the end of your career as well. Uh, it was actually 1971 when I finished oh, was it law school. Okay. Uh, accepted a position with the DA's office in Philadelphia uh, and went to work in Specter's office. He was the DA. Uh, one of my earliest uh, involvements with him directly. I mean, I was a very low person on a totem pole of over 100 assistant district attorneys. I was invited to a meeting on a major series of investigations where I was really the junior, junior person. I arrived early in his office, um, making sure I was very early. I was sh- shown into the office and there was no one there. And I thought, I'm going to find the most inconspicuous chair and seat and just try not to mess up the situation because there were going to be about 10 people at the meeting. I saw the chairs around the table. I pulled a chair out at the bottom end of the table to sit in, uh, and I realized somebody was standing behind me. I turned around, and it was D.A. Arlen Specter, And he said, what did you do with that chair? And all I could say was, sir? He said, you moved that chair. I carefully place all those chairs from my meetings, and I would appreciate it if you would put the chair back exactly where it was. Well, I was in a state of shock. I thought, I'm probably going to be dismissed from the Pennsylvania bar, thrown out of this office because I moved his chair. I put the chair carefully back and sat there like a mouse and said nothing for the rest of the meeting. Uh, As the years went by, I kept that in mind when I was a supervisor and people, new people were talking with me and the, the fear and intimidation that you can create. 35, about 35 years later, I'm being interviewed by Senator Specter at his office in Philadelphia for the position of U.S. attorney because both senators had to, had to agree to the, to the person was an appropriate person to, to nominate for the position. I'm shown into the office, a different office. Uh, 
I very carefully pick a chair to sit uh, down you in. You didn't move that chair, did you? Senator Specter comes in. Uh, he's still our inspector. Sharp questioning, close questioning, crisp manner, very thoroughly knowledgeable about every facet of the law that the U.S. Attorney's Office would be involved in. At the end, I had the temerity to say to him, to remind him of the story of the chair and to point out to him that I hadn't moved the chair this time. He had no recollection of what I was talking about. I thought <laughs> that had been absolutely nothing to him, but to me it was a milestone. And uh, I thought, well, uh, you have to be very careful if you move the district attorney's chair, but you can't let it impede the rest of your career. <laughs> In the 70s, you worked on the Allied Chemical Corporation case. Uh, they were dumping an ant pesticide into the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. And uh, during the discovery phase, you came upon some damning evidence. Talk uh, about that. Well, I did this. I was an, an attorney with the federal EPA at that point in their Philadelphia office, and I was assigned to the investigation when it first began as an administrative investigation about this Keypone product. Uh, later on, it became a criminal investigation after it turned out that a a company connected with Allied, operated by several of its former employees, was making the keypone in an old gas station down near Petersburg, Virginia, and dumping the waste without any treatment whatsoever into the drainage uh, sewage disposal part of the of the facility, as well as allowing the employees to put it anywhere they wanted, some of them even bringing it home. The damage was horrific to the Chesapeake Bay. An attorney from the Department of Justice and I were assigned to the case. Subpoenas were issued. We went forward with the investigation, and this was pre-internet, pre-computer. Everything was hard copy documents. We finally got access to a huge trove of documents. We were told by defense attorneys and by the people with the companies, we have them in a warehouse, come down and look at them. We went down to look at them, and there was this huge, rather ugly building full of boxes uh, of documents and other materials. The boxes were wet. They were damaged. They obviously looked like they'd been contaminated with something. I'm not sure what, exactly what it was. And I got the impression, which has never left me, that they did this deliberately kind of challenging us to actually go through these years and years of documents. Um, the department attorney and myself got gloves and spent the next couple of weeks on staying in Richmond and, and making various trips down there. And we went through all the records. I don't think they expected that we did. And the evidence surfaced, which resulted in the prosecution of the two officers of that company, Life Sciences, uh, and a huge, huge fine and settlement paid by Allied Chemical, uh, which went some distance toward cleaning up the problem in Chesapeake Bay and enabling to eventually open up the, the river for fishing. I regarded this as, a, as an initial example of the fact that the prosecutors have to be determined uh, to follow through and find the evidence wherever it is. It also reminded me, as you, was, yeah. as you were telling that story, um, you know, a lot of times when crimes have been committed that, uh, you know, against the environment, uh, don't seem to get the kind of attention or of the ones where, you know, it's a violent crime, uh, where a gun is used or, you know, there's a victim, uh, you know, one victim or something like that. Is that something that has changed in the la last 40 years that the federal government, that law enforcement on the federal level takes environmental crimes much more seriously? Uh, I think that's that's true. That's one of the things that I felt I feel very pleased in some in a very small way to have been involved with it, at least initially. Um, there have been roadblocks. Uh, there have been issues where e EPA, for various reasons, has not uh, investigated things as fully as perhaps they might have been and has relied 
maybe appropriately on the states in many cases to go forward, and the states have not always been able to do so. Environmental crimes are insidious ones because they take a long time to show their effect, or sometimes the effect is so devastating and so deep that you can't deal with it by just arresting one person or doing one particular thing, and that's why we have to, I think, have a strong enforcement arm as far as environmental crime is concerned and have federal prosecutors and state prosecutors who will do those cases. I I think that in the U.S. Attorney's Office, at least all three offices in Pennsylvania and others that I know as well, you have a vigorous enforcement arm. Uh, Budgetary constraints, I think, have uh, affected that in some cases, and obviously political restraints sometimes do as well. But it's there. We just have to make sure we use it. Our guest during this portion of the program is uh, former U.S. Attorney Peter Smith. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, you mentioned politics. You're retired now, so you can... I know you won't, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, there have been accusations, especially during the last eight years by, you know, we've become so partisan in this country that the Department of Justice, uh, that politics is often considered when uh, something is prosecuted or pursued, investigated. Mm-hmm. In your experience, how much of a role does politics play in any of this? Um, it. It really depends on what you mean by politics. The Department of Justice, and I've worked under four, five different presidents of both parties and many attorneys general and in both the state and federal level. Um, I think to be a prosecutor, state or federal, you have to be aware of a political background, the political context. You can't pretend it's not there. You have to do your best to avoid being adversely or improperly affected by it The U.S. Department of Justice has a lot of procedures and policies in effect to minimize the possibility that the wrong decision will be made for the wrong political reason. Uh, There's a lot of insulation given to U.S. attorneys' offices to keep them away from getting heavily involved in political activity, to limit what they can do, to limit what the assistant U.S. attorneys and the staff can do, and, and by and large, it's been very, very good. All of the assistant U.S. attorneys in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Harrisburg and Scranton, which was my district, are career prosecutors. They are not political appointees. The only political appointee was me uh, as, by, by the president. And, and, and I'd been a former prosecutor as an assistant for many years, and I came from that same background, and I understood the reasons for it. And it works admirably. It works very, very well. Nearly all of the federal law enforcement agents and agencies, the FBI, the IRS, ATF, uh, DEA, are career law enforcement officials, many with long experience even before they become federal investigators. So by and large, there's not this fear and concern that somehow the political fix is in. Many times you hear about the fix being in uh, when the investigation's underway and people don't know what's going to happen and they think the government's moving too slowly. They think somehow someone's fixed the case. And then after the prosecution begins, you hear complaints from the defendants and their lawyers and their friends and their family saying, you're picking on me because I'm in the wrong political party or you, you, you've been mad at me for years or you're a rival or you're just out to get me. In nearly every case, that's not true. There are mistakes made in prosecutions. The evidence is sometimes not what it appears to be. The witnesses aren't what they appear to be. Um, The juries and sometimes the judges just disagree with what the prosecutors have chosen to charge and and, and the the conclusions to be drawn from the evidence. 
But in my experience, and particularly with the Middle District of Pennsylvania, the prosecutions have been based on nothing but the law and the evidence and not on political considerations. Anything you hear to the contrary is just somebody with an agenda of their own griping for one reason or another. Recently, uh, there was a series on NPR about uh, Lewisburg Federal uh, Penitentiary Hmm. that... um, it almost sounded as if there were people, and the word torture was used, that there were some very harsh means used uh, for even minor violations or someone who, who didn't cooperate. What is your, as a as a federal prosecutor, how involved are you in that? Have you heard any rumblings about that? Um, I, I don't want to say anything that sounds like I'm commenting on anything that's ongoing, whether it's a civil or a criminal matter. Lewisburg is in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, and a a good portion of the time of the civil attorneys in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is a part of the office that doesn't get much publicity or direct attention, is involved in representing either the Department of Justice itself and the Bureau of Prisons or officials or employees of the prison when they're the subjects of lawsuits brought by inmates or groups representing the inmates. And I'm not trying to make a judgment on all those cases. The cases are investigated. Oftentimes, when it's a criminal accusation, the FBI conducts the investigation, and the, and the conclusions, the determinations that are made are based on the evidence, not on accusations. It's a very difficult environment in which to work. It's very difficult to determine what is the truth and what are the facts. Um, those cases eventually wind up in court, and they're decided um, by the courts, in, in many cases, in, in jury trials. So I, I, I don't know the specific facts you're referring to. Um, the Bureau of Prisons is always an agency in a process of change and under very strong criticism both internally and externally. Um, it, it's substantially understaffed and underfunded. No, most people don't realize that a good chunk of the entire budget of the Department of Justice goes to the Bureau of Prisons, which, of course, gets back at the problem about prison overcrowding and overuse of long sentences in order to deal something with the crime problem. So I think, by and large, the system works appropriately, not always. And the fact that there are people who will defend uh, people who are in prison and seek to represent them is, is good and it's appropriate. You just have to be careful with uh, sometimes overzealousness leads to uh, misstating the facts of a case. Mm-hmm. Former U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, Peter Smith, thank you very much for being with us and thank you for your service. Oh, thank you very much for having me again, Scott. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I, we have a big announcement coming up uh, on uh, WITF here in the first hour of the Diane Reem Show. As many of you are aware, Diane Reem is retiring at the end of this year. And uh, during this first hour of the Diane Reem Show, they will announce her replacement, who will be succeeding Diane Ream on the air. Uh, obviously, it will not be called the Diane Ream Show, but uh, what that talk show will be, who will be uh, sitting in that chair, that's coming up during the first hour of the Diane Ream Show. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the Electoral College. That's on tomorrow's Smart Talk.